politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. And, of course, we're a podcast. We even post on YouTube. But always are happy when you join us live Tuesdays at 1 o'clock and join the group mind here on KPFK. Great show for you today. We're going to continue our discussion of consciousness and the idea that, like a fish in the ocean, we're immersed in a unified cosmic field of awareness. And what are the implications of that? My God, what does that mean? Whether we approach it from a spiritual point of view, uh, monism, or what's come to be called panpsychism, that type of uh, uh, interest or intrigue, or if you come at it from quantum physics, uh, there's a, a growing, burgeoning awareness here that things are much more than they appear to be. And uh, there's one fellow whose name has come up several times this year with other guests, and uh, we have the good fortune of having him with us today on KPFK. He's the chief scientist of IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radin. Dean, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let me start with your background and your interests. This, uh, you're best known, I think, for your most recent book, Entangled Minds, and your study of uh, extrasensory phenomena. I guess that's still the best way to refer to clairvoyance and telepathy, so-called remote viewing, and these in intuitive hits that we get sometimes that uh, the phone rings and instantly you you know who it is or uh, you have a premonition perhaps or a prompting that something is going to happen and the more we it seems the more we honor that stuff the more likely it is to happen Jung called them synchronicities and suggest they have meaning so this is a huge field I wonder how did you get into this uh, field of study? Uh, first of all, I, I'll be happy to answer that, but uh, Entangled Minds is actually two books ago. So I have two uh, two other books that I've written since then. Well, I can't keep up with you then. <laughs> Entangled Minds is the one that caught my attention. So yeah. we'll talk about all of them if, if that's okay. Sure. So um, my interest in, in things about psychic phenomena and mystical experience was mainly sparked by reading probably a few too many fairy tales when I was a kid. Uh, it was before the time of Harry Potter, but it would be along those lines, reading about uh, magical powers, which, of course, all kids are interested in, and presumably a lot of adults, too. 
what often happens when people become adults is that they drop what they could, what they perceive as childish ideas like magic. Uh, I did not drop that interest because when I was around 14, I ran across a book that was talking about how scientists were studying whether psychic phenomena were actually true. And it was talking about uh, J.B. Ryan at Duke University and others at the, at the time back in from about the 1920s to the 1980s almost, where psychologists, experimental psychologists and physicists were using scientific methods to see whether the stories that are found throughout history about various kinds of psychic effects, whether they were appropriate to be studied in the laboratory, the answer is yes, and what the results are of these studies. So that immediately caught my attention because I had been interested in technology and science and all of that whole realm, even as a little kid. And we were discussing earlier, we have a common interest in ham radio. And that's what led me initially in college to get first a bachelor's and then a master's degree in electrical engineering. It was that interest in, in making stuff, electronic stuff. And then I decided after my master's degree that I actually wasn't that interested in becoming an electrical engineer. I just wanted to know how it worked. So I decided that maybe that wasn't a great profession for me. I'd like to know how all kinds of things work. So I switched into experimental psychology, mainly because I wanted to know more about how would you actually go about testing things having to do with the psyche. And behind the scenes there, I was always interested in how do you test psychic phenomena? And so I figured, okay, I, I can do that with uh, experimental psychology and learn at least research methods. And then with the engineering background, I figured I could maybe make experiments myself. So I actually started doing that in graduate school. And I never forgot the excitement that, that you know, children feel when they read these stories, which are stretching the imagination. And knowing then how to actually do experiments, I started to do them. I went on to get uh, conventional jobs because I had to make a living too. So I worked at Bell Labs for a while. Uh, later was recruited by a program being sponsored by the US government, which was classified, which was doing psychic espionage. This was during the Cold War. And, and so that taught me two things. One was that there are legitimate scientists at real places who are interested in these topics, that experiments can be done, that they find interesting results. Uh, and while the classified environment was peculiar for me because I had never worked in that kind of context before, it was also eye-opening because I had a chance to meet people who had exceptional skills in this domain especially remote viewing skills. And it wasn't simply that we're able to get interesting results in the laboratory, but they were, they were engaged by various agencies in the government to do operational missions. They were getting real intelligence that was used for missions. And some of the agencies came back many, many times, dozens, over a hundred times for additional information. So while we didn't always know the full parameters of a mission that somebody was working on, the fact that they kept coming back for more information was a confirmation of what we were seeing in the laboratory, namely that some people are very talented in these domains. And then from a scientific perspective, it's extremely challenging 
to try to figure out, given the rest of the way that we know the world works, how do we fit these psychic skills into that? And so one of the reasons I've stayed in this field uh, of, of research for almost 40 years now is trying to make that to reconcile, given what we know about the world, uh, as best as science can tell us, something very important is missing. So I've been on the track, as, and my colleagues are as well, to find out what have we missed in terms of the, the usual approach that science takes to try to understand uh, the, the role of the mind in the physical world. That's what it really comes down to. Well, that's really nicely said, the role of the mind. I'm curious, this um, federal government espionage work that you were talking about, did that include, um, were you at uh, SRI with Targ and Putoff and those guys? Yes, it was SRI International, yeah. So that's all declassified now. We can talk about that, right? Yeah, most of it is declassified. There were stories that I read well, some go back to the Ostrander and Schroeder book, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. Do you think any of that stuff was, was valid? Was that a well-researched book, do you think? I would say that that was uh, important in the sense that it was providing information about what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, I would say also that maybe 20% of it was real. So a lot of it were stories, and, and if you can't verify whether the story is real or not, then it's just a story. And part of what I was doing there, and part of what the program was doing, was threat assessment. Like, do we need to worry about what we're reading in this book? So part of what we would do then was to read scientific papers, which had been produced by those countries, which we had gotten a hold of somehow, and then they were translated, and then we would try to see, is, is this credible? And sometimes we would try to replicate those experiments, and occasionally we'd have the opportunity to interview a scientist who was defecting from one of those countries, and we would see, is what they're saying make sense? So some of it, yeah, some of it we could verify that was real. Like we later learned that the Russians had their own program of... Uh, of psychic espionage. Uh, it was much bigger than the one in the US. Uh, they were very serious about it. They had very good people in that program. But a lot of the other aspects of it, we were never able to, to confirm. And as best as we can tell, they were not a threat. It's been probably 30 years or more since I read that book. But again, psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain. But to reports that stood out for me. One was uh, a woman who could supposedly read with the tips of her fingers as if there were optic nerves in her fingertips. And the other, which I found much more credible, had to do with an experiment where a mother rabbit was put on a submarine in a Faraday cage submerged on the other side of the world while its babies, tragically, were executed in the Soviet Union then. And the mother showed a reaction, even though she was isolated from any electromagnetic waves. Uh, were you ever able to verify that experiment? 
No, but I, I wouldn't be surprised that it, something like that actually occurred. So we, I mean, I'd never found a paper trail that said this definitely happened, but we, we did know that uh, the Soviets at the time were much more interested in, besides an interest in remote viewing, they were interested in remote action. So what you're describing would be in that class. It, could you affect another living entity's physiology from a distance? So they were doing they were doing that. Whereas in the U.S., we didn't we didn't do those experiments. Well, what I found intriguing about it at the time, as a young man, was that, and we've already touched on the on, on the fact that we're both interested and in, intrigued by radio, and uh, the idea of RF or radio frequency waves emanating out through the ethers. It's such a magical thing, and yet. We know that energy dissipates over space. We even know the inverse square formula for the extent or degree to which it dissipates. And yet, I think uh, I think it was Upton Sinclair that even wrote a book called Mental Radio, where he was suggesting such things. And yet, here we have this uh, rabbit in a Faraday cage, you know, like a lead-lined cage, so there's no electromagnetic waves can reach it. And it's submerged in the submarine, allegedly, and very far away. It seems psychic phenomena has no respect for time or distance, for space. That is right. And that is why it's so interesting. So up until the development of quantum mechanics, there, it was thought, and some still believe, that these, these kinds of effects cannot exist. It would be impossible because the physical world does not allow for those kinds of connections. But we know that with quantum entanglement, that there are connections that transcend space and time. They're not electromagnetic. They're not any of the known forces, but nevertheless, it's a thing. And now it's no longer a question that entanglement is a real thing. So it, it raises the possibility that what we see as psychic phenomena, which are all about transcending space and time, except at experiential level, what we see there might be related in some important way with what we're learning about the, the deep nature of physical reality. And I think that it's not a coincidence that the, the strangeness in quantum mechanics is, as I said, things transcend space and time, connection somehow. You find exactly the same thing, which is the weird part of psychic phenomena, that there are connections that transcend space and time. In addition, in quantum mechanics, you also have an observer effect. Whereas if you observe a quantum system, its behavior changes as compared to when it's not observed. And you see the same thing for psychic phenomena as well, where people will claim that they can mentally cause things to happen at a distance. And so you can recast that into terms of consciousness that is focused on a physical system will cause that system to change, just like in a quantum sense. And so the many, many experiments done on both sides of those two, two kinds of phenomena, remote perception and remote action. And the evidence, I think, is pretty clear that the phenomena do exist. When it comes to anecdotes about people's experiences, there's a long due diligence list that you go through to try to figure out what is that experience. Well, it could be coincidence, and in many cases it is coincidence. Uh, it could be um, misperception, it could be confabulation, it could be a whole bunch of things. 
And so the reason why we take these phenomena into the laboratory is specifically to rule out all of these possible loopholes in terms of interpretation. So when we see something like uh, an effect similar to the rabbit story, except we use humans, we're not trying to kill anything. We simply want to see whether the feeling of being stared at is a real phenomenon, right? If somebody is staring at you over a closed circuit TV and you have no idea when they're staring at you, and yet you can see a physiological change in the person who's being stared at, and we do see those effects, that suggests that the, the, the rabbit experiment, at least in principle, could have worked. Whether that thing in particular was actually done is another issue. Let's follow up on that. I think that's fascinating. I've seen it called gaze detection. And I read someplace that someone or some group believes they have located specific neurons in the brain that account for this awareness that somebody is staring at you, even though you, you know, are looking in the opposite direction. Am I right about that? Is there science about particular neurons? Well, yes. I mean, there are mirror neurons and there are other aspects that would allow you to sense when somebody is staring, but only locally, right? Peripheral vision, your, your senses are highly attuned, especially to anything that is a threat to you. But that's, that, I would not put that in the class of a psychic effect. But, so that's why, you know, in the real world, somebody will go out to a coffee shop and they'll get this sense, somebody's staring at me, they'll turn around, sure enough. But there's lots of mundane reasons why they might pick that up. When you, talk, you transition into a psychic sense, there can't be any possible ordinary sensory way for the person to know if they're being stared at. So that's why you go into the laboratory and use the closed circuit uh, video link and you isolate the two people. So you put the, the one who's being stared at in a Faraday cage, be used a, a, a room that is made out of solid steel walls, double walled, and then grounded and, and electrically sealed. So there's no way that the outside world can influence a person in that cage. Nevertheless, we take through fiber optics, a video image of that person and send it to the, the distant sender in another room who periodically would see the image of the person inside the shielded room or not. And so the instructions for them is when you see the person's face pop up, it's a live video image, mentally stare at him, stare at them like crazy, like you're trying to contact them. And then when the image goes away to withdraw your attention. And meanwhile, we're measuring physiology of the person being stared at. We don't ask them if they're being stared at. We just measure heart rate and skin conductance and pupil dilation and a whole bunch of other things. And the hypothesis is that if the, in, the focused intention of somebody at a distance is staring at you, do you unconsciously pick it up as reflected by changes in your physiology? And the short answer is yes, we see changes. If we ask people to indicate when they think they're being stared at, it's usually a chance. So there's some unconscious physiological thing that's happening. And in some people who are sensitive to what's going on in their viscera, they, they do get it consciously. They can tell their heartbeat is starting to, to get activated and their whole sympathetic nervous system is activated. That's a clue that goes up to their consciousness that says something's not right, which is usually interpreted in a physical space with other people as somebody is staring at me or somebody is threatening me. 
And then you'll look around. Sure enough, you find somebody. You mentioned that some people are better at this naturally than others. And so I suspect, since we're all unique physically, uh, we have DNA proof of our uniqueness and fingerprint evidence. Uh, there may be a genetic component. Some people just may have more neurons uh, of this particular kind. But having said that, and referencing your comments about access to the unconscious or the distractions that sort of separate the conscious from the unconscious. Deep relaxation or meditation, contemplation, seems to have a lot to do with opening uh, us to this expanded awareness. Uh, I'm wondering if you have found in your life an ability to facilitate uh, ESP or psychic phenomena through deep relaxation, through meditation? Well, that was pretty much the topic of the book after Entangled Minds, which is called Supernormal. And th that book was looking at, among other things, does meditation give rise to higher sensitivity to these kinds of experiences? And the short answer there is yes. And what I used in that book as a way of talking about this was uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras because th this is the, the classic book of yoga, written about roughly 2,000 years ago. And the reason why that book is interesting is because it was the first written version of what had been an oral tradition for thousands of years before that. And so the third chapter in that book is all about the cities that arise. These are the special powers. City is a sans Sanskrit term meaning attainment or power. So those powers are essentially the same as what we today would call psychic abilities. Some of them tend to be a lot more dramatic than what we generally tend to see, things like levitation and invisibility, like superhero kinds of stuff. So if you look through the 25 or so different kinds of cities that are supposed to arise as a result of meditation in certain states, uh, you can match it against the scientific research that has been done to see whether there's any reason to believe these ancient stories? And the answer is yes, that some of the cities, the elementary versions of cities are precognition, clairvoyance, telepathy, that sort of thing, all of which there is a large body of evidence saying that those things were real. What's interesting then is that, well, what about all of the other cities? We're talking about a city where you become as heavy as an elephant a city where you become as light as a feather, a city where you, under, you understand completely the, the nature of the cosmos, All, you know, a huge range of different kinds of powers that we don't ordinarily associate with psychic awareness. But you figure if, if the elementary cities we can verify through modern scientific methods, maybe those other ones were real too. Maybe the reasons we don't generally see them is because the people that gain those abilities are, first of all, lifelong meditators. And second, they're also very naturally talented because it actually says in, in the Yoga Sutras that the cities can be achieved through meditation or through an act of birth, which means you genetic some kind of genetic inheritance or certain kinds of drugs, psychedelics. And 
all of this seems to be true today. We just, if there are people out there who can levitate, I would love to see them do that uh, or have, have the other uh, incredible cities. So at this point, there remain stories, but it, at least with a, an opening of, well, there's some reason to believe it may be more than just a story. Boy, I love this. This is just so fascinating. My guest is Dr. Dean Radin. He is a scientist, an empiricist, and yet has expanded his study into this magnificent field of being everywhere equally present, this idea of the ocean of consciousness. He's the author of a number of books we've been talking about, Entangled Minds, which I thought was the most recent, but it turns out I've fallen behind. He has a couple of more we'll talk about right after this short break. Stay with us. Dr. Dean Radin is my guest from IONS Institute, and we'll be back right after this. You're listening to 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK. Dr. Dean Radin is my guest today. He is the chief scientist at the IONS Institute that was set up years ago by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Dean, uh, I guess Edgar Mitchell's interest in psychic phenomena, I mean, he did that experiment, that famous telepathic experiment from his position orbiting the moon. You must have spent time with him. What can you tell us about Edgar Mitchell and his interest in psychic phenomena? Well, so Edgar was unusual for a lot of reasons, besides being one of the very few people actually land on the moon, step on the moon. He was uh, courageous enough, as reflected by being an astronaut, I suppose, to counter the, the status quo, which said you, you, these things don't exist or you shouldn't study them or for one reason or another, why in the world are you doing this? Well, the reason was that because of his experiences. So when he was coming back to the earth uh, from the moon, he, as he, way he put it is he had the window seat because his, his job is essentially over. So he had the, the ability to spend a few moments to look out of the window and the spacecraft was rotating, so it wouldn't get too hot on one side. So what he would see then was a, a, a rotating sequence of the moon, the stars, and the earth, again and again, slowly. And in contemplating, especially looking at the earth from space, which at that point, very few people had ever done, he had this sense, which is now called the overview effect, which people even going up on uh, SpaceX have the same kind of feeling that there are no borders in space. You can't see individuals, but you know that there's billions of people down there. All of our history, all of our conflicts, all of everything are on this tiny little ball in the middle of the blackness of space. And from space, when you look at the atmosphere, it is extremely thin. It's like, it's fragile. It looks fragile from the earth. It's beautiful, but it's it's fragile. That's what protects us from from the dark from actually the vacuum of space. And we have evolved in this planet long enough so that we can walk outside naked in most places in the world and be perfectly fine. We're not going to be fried by the by the sun and we're not going to be sucked into the vacuum. We've evolved perfectly for this particular environment. 
And so you, you wonder then from that position, well, why do we have so much conflict on this planet? It's, it's beautiful. We're here. We're, we've evolved here. This is part, we are literally part of the planet itself, which is part of the large, big, big part of space. So why, do, why is there so much conflict? Well, he was, he was contemplating all of this as he was looking out at the earth and it evolved into a mystical experience. He later discovered that there are names for these things was a certain kind of samadhi that he had experienced. And as you can imagine, if you come back to earth then, uh, and you've had any kind of interest in these things beforehand, he had the opportunity and the means to create an institute that would use the tools of science, which is the best that we know today for figuring out how things work, to answer the question then of what was that experience? This was not like an imagination of feeling one with the universe. It was literally a palpable feeling. I am one with the universe. And so was everything else. So you can see then that he, he became very interested in this and found out a way to create an institute that is now almost 50 years old, uh, where we're, we're scientists and doing the best that we can to try to use the tools of science to figure out what can we learn about ourselves and the nature of the universe by studying aspects of consciousness that are not yet allowed actually to be studied in the mainstream. So in the process of doing all this, of course, you learn interesting things about psychic phenomena, but you also learn very interesting things about the way that science works for real as opposed to the aspirations of science. So science in, in the academic world uh, are supposed to allow academic freedom to study anything you want. Well, that's never been true. And it is certainly not true when it comes to things that challenge the status quo a little bit too much. Well, I've come to believe, Dean, that the reason for the violence, the hostility, the disagreement uh, is the illusion of separation. The idea that there's somebody here who's not us, somebody called them who is threatening us. And the beauty of quantum physics entanglement and much of Eastern philosophy, perhaps all of philosophy, is that uh, there really is no separation. In the material world, it's apparent, it's obvious. No two physical objects can be in the same place at the same time. Uh, liquids, of course, you could pour together. But energy is a, a whole other story. And um, our physical senses and sensations, although they receive energy phenomena, visual vision is light, that's energy, hearing is energy, but we're still focused in a material world that appears to be separate. And I think that generates the fear that causes the problem. So as we understand entanglement and this idea that consciousness is a unified field, that could be the antidote to our problems with violence. What do you think? Well, it is, it's true that from an, an embodied perspective, let's say, we, we are, where our bodies are separate from each other, all of our senses in the everyday world are telling us that we are separate. And, then, and at that level, we are separate. The, the problem, of course, is that we're certainly interdependent. 
right? I mean, the, we see this immediately as soon as we have to shut down all the air traffic because there's fears of a virus, for example, the interdependence disrupts supply chains around the world. And so the, the, the world is completely interdependent at this point. It's very difficult for somebody to be completely off the grid for any length of time because we depend on each other for all kinds of things. But at a deeper physical level, what quantum physics has discovered initially just purely mathematically and later verified to be true is that it's not just interdependence. There's an interconnectedness, a holistic kind of interconnectedness that actually binds everything at, at an elementary scale. Well, we generally don't experience that. It's at a level of, of, of atoms and particles that, that are the microscopic range, which we, our senses are not very good at picking up. But we can see it in the laboratory. And the implication, of course, is at this point, everything that we know is, is better described in a quantum mechanical way than in a classical physics way in which case these connections must exist everywhere. So my guess then is that the reason why people have mystical experiences or psychic experiences is because at an experiential level, the level of consciousness itself, that actually is interconnected with everything. It, otherwise, it's very difficult to understand how, as you were saying before, how could something that is submerged in a submarine have any interaction with the rest of the world? Well, the whole point of submarines is that they, once they submerge to a certain depth, they're undetectable. I mean, we, we, even, we, we can't even detect them. That's the whole point of it. So something is transcending all of the usual physical forces that we understand. I would say at this point, we don't know that it's entanglement, but at least the concept of entanglement suggests that the physical world would allow for those kinds of interconnections. And quantum mechanics is pretty good at what it does, but it's not the end of physics either. Eventually, physics will continue to evolve. And I suspect, I actually strongly suspect, that eventually we'll find physical explanations for psychic phenomena, except that the concept of what we mean by physical at that point will have pretty radically changed. And some people say, well, that, that couldn't possibly happen. And I would say, well, you probably should read your history because from 1900 to 2000, our concepts about the nature of physicality did radically change in many, many ways, in ways that people in the 1900s would have said, that's ridiculous. That, that's not the way the physical world works. Well, yeah, it is. So take another century or two hence, or millennium hence, I'm reasonably sure that we will have whatever science is at that point, we will have pretty good scientific explanations for what we currently conceive of as spiritual experiences. But it, you know, but, but it would look, it, it wouldn't even be conceivable today's scientists, but that's what's gonna happen. Well, uh, what we've discovered about uh, the missing matter in the universe, the so-called dark matter and dark energy, uh, suggests that uh, we're unaware of what, 85% of what constitutes the universe? 96%. How much, how much? 96? 96%. <laughs> See, that number is even growing. Uh, is invisible. We can't touch it. We only know that it exists because of its effect on gravity, right? Right. Yeah, we infer that it's there. But, of course, that's also dependent on our, mo our cosmological models. 
right? So if our cosmology is off a little bit, well, then, then we don't know what's going on. And, and, and actually, this is true at the leading edge of science everywhere. We usually assume that uh, we're, pretty, we're pretty smart, we're modern and sophisticated, and we understand how things work. But if you look at how long humans have been doing science, it's, it's like a, an instant of the, the history of creatures on Earth. So to have at this point a strong sense of actually knowing how things work is simply hubris, as far as I'm concerned. There's way more that's not, not known at all as compared to what we think we understand today. Oh, yes. I think, uh, I think it's Socrates when I think about uh, the wisdom in assuming that there's always much more that we do not understand and that a wise person is one who knows how much we do not know yeah rather than focusing on what we think we know yeah we i mean we we get the impression that we know a lot mainly because of our technologies so if you look at a, a smartphone today that's an amazing piece of, of of equipment that was built most people have no idea how it works i mean they accept it because you can buy it and it works but if to go down into the, the nature of everything that must be true for it to work and that we have figured out is really astonishing. But that's not the end of technology either. So we will always be, in, if, if provided our species continues, we will always be encountering new kinds of phenomena that uh, previous generations would have thought were magic. Which brings me to my most recent book, which is all about magic. Real magic. Real magic. And that's, that's the title of the book. <laughs> so how many do you have altogether? We've talked about three. How many books have you written? Four popular books. Okay. Well, I think we need to do a couple of definitions here because we're assuming people, and I know in this audience many people do understand these terms, but... I want to make sure that uh, we don't leave anybody behind. Let's spend a couple of minutes on the concept of this word entanglement. Let's start with the quantum physics concept of entanglement of particles, and then we'll take it to the allegory of the entangled mind. So entanglement within physics was a term actually translated from a German term by Erwin Schrodinger, who came with, the, with this idea that if the mathematics of quantum theory are correct, then when particles interact, the, the description of, those, of the interaction creates a new term mathematically, which suggests that there's a piece of each particle which is now part of each of the particles. It's a part of the idea of a superposition or a mixed state where two particles seem to be independent, like two bodies are independent, but they interact in some way and then they separate. And the separation, there's still some aspect of themselves that are connected. So the, initially it was thought, well, Einstein, in fact, thought that this was spooky action at a distance, which was disallowed by classical physics anyway and also disallowed by relativity, because it suggested that there were connections between things that seemed to be instantaneous. That's what was suggested by the mathematics, and that would violate relativity. 
So Einstein didn't like that very much. But in the modern world, since the 1970s approximately, experiments have been done to see whether in, in elementary particles like photons and electrons, once they interact and then they separate, are they still connected in ways that are absolutely not described by classical physics? And the answer is yes, there are those connections. It's sometimes thought though that the reason why it seems to work in quantum mechanics is that a quantum particle doesn't have properties until it is measured or observed. So this is one of the many strange things about quantum mechanics. So it would not be correct to say that uh, the two particles have separated and you tweak one and the other one responds. It's not quite that simple. It's more that uh, if you have two particles, you separate them as long as you don't observe them yet. Once you do observe one of them and you, you in the process of observing, it will create a property like a spin or, or a, a polarization or some other aspect. Once that property is established, if you look at the other one, it will show the opposite property. So if it's spinning one way with one particle, the other will spin the other way. And it's always that case. So somehow the particle, the second particle knew that the first particle had, had produced a certain property and the other one will produce the anti-property. This brings us to the double slit experiment, which I've pondered for years and it just continues to confound me. The idea that if we pass one of these electrons or photons through a board or a card with a double slit that we get an interference pattern suggesting energy on the back wall until we observe it. If we put an electron detector, then it acts like a particle rather than an energy. And my mind always asks, <laughs> how does it know? Yeah, we, we don't know how it knows, but that's, it is the simplest way of describing or demonstrating the observer effect. Something about measurement changes the nature of the elementary world. So for the past, uh, since actually since 2008, I've been running experiments using a double slit system and experiments to see if you simply assign somebody to mentally observe what is going on when the photons are approaching a double slit, would that change the interference pattern? And the answer is yes. So I've done, I forget, 18 or 19 experiments of this type using different kinds of lasers and different uh, apparatus with single photons and with continual beam photons, lots of different variations. And then almost all of the experiments, you do see evidence that the interference pattern changes when people observe the system indirectly. What I mean is that you can't see a photon. I mean, you, actually you can if you wait long enough and you're dark adapted. But the, the way that you connect to the system in this case is we have a metric that measures, looks at the interference pattern and decides how much double slit interference is actually happening right now in this interference pattern. There's a variety of ways you can do that. You can measure fringe visibility, you can do Fourier transforms, all kinds of stuff. But you can get a measure in real time as to how much double slittiness is going on as compared to a diffraction pattern, and you give that as feedback to the person. So if you're involved in the experiment and you're looking at a, like a line graph, which is showing how much double slit activity is happening, and you're asked to make that go down, 
like pay a lot of attention to it as though you were a photo detector, could you make the interference pattern go away? Well, the answer seems to be yes, it can. It's not easy to do these experiments, but nevertheless, they work. So what my logical brain tries to uh, inform me is that uh, I'm trying to be deductive about this. Uh, help me out. Am I to presume then that what appears as a particle, a photon, a little energy packet, uh, an electron, which we think of as some very, very tiny subatomic particle, still some sort of matter, is actually an energy vortex, a little packet of energy with no real material substance, unless and until it's observed. And then it becomes solid? My God, is that what we're saying? No, it's not, not that it becomes solid, but rather that it gains properties. All elementary particles don't have properties yet. We find it's difficult to think about because in the everyday world, everything has properties to it. I mean, it has a certain color, a certain weight. All of these things are properties of objects. Mass. You're talking about mass, right? Not only mass, but we're, we're talking literally about uh, does it have spin? Does it have charge? Does it have, in a larger sense, does it have a color? Does it have a frequency? All of these things are properties which we use to describe how an object is. So at the quantum scale, these are not set. It's, I mean, this is one of the reasons why people are so excited about quantum computers, because the, in the process of computing with these kinds of objects, they initially, before they're observed, they have all properties, all possible properties. So it's like a, the reason why the quantum computer is so much more efficient than a classical computer is because it contains all possibilities at once. It's very unlike having bits, like zeros and ones, in a classical computer. It contains all possible solutions. And that's so it's like a massively parallel computer. Well, that's so anyway, that, that is the, the reason why technologies are now taking advantage of this strange aspect of the quantum world where Particles are not yet set into a particular set of properties or not. So somehow, in this case, these experiments that I were talking about with the double soot system, if clairvoyance is a real thing, and you could mentally see something happening even down at the quantum scale, you could, in principle, use your imagination or use your remote viewing ability to see what was happening to photons. By observing the photon, it would change its ability, it would change its behavior by gaining certain properties, and that would so-called collapse the wave function and the interference pattern would go away. Let me ask you to do the impossible, Dean, because we're almost out of time here. In a sentence or two, tell us what is reality? Well, that is impossible. So... In a sentence or two, I would say uh, uh, two things. First of all, we actually don't know. And second, uh, we make models of what we think reality is based on the behavior of things that we can push around. And so I'm talking about theories. Our theories are explanations about the nature of reality. Theories within science, and this is way more than two sentences, I'm sorry, but I can't do it any less. <laughs> Scientific theories are 
really good at describing how things work, usually at a macro scale, but increasingly at a micro scale too. And then we project based on inferences of those theories what reality must be. And a lot of it is pretty good. Like we, we probably live on a planet that's out in the middle of space and on the edge of a galaxy and all that. There's probably all of that is correct. But huge amounts of the nature of reality are either not perceived by us at all, as you mentioned before, things like dark energy and matter. We have no idea what that is, or even if it's real at this point. And worse than that, we really don't understand the nature of consciousness. And so the esoteric world always imagines that consciousness is really the most fundamental thing after all. It's more fundamental than the physical world. And if you listen to mystics, mystics will always describe, uh, give me a one word answer to what the reality is. They'll always say love. Love is the thing that binds everything together. Well, that's not very satisfying if, if you have a scientific mind and you want to know, well, what are you even talking about love? But that's like the best that you can come up with as an explanation from looking at the reality from the inside, right? Science looks at reality from the outside and consciousness somehow is getting it from the inside. And we don't know how to connect those two yet, but eventually I think we'll get there and we'll have a much better explanation, but I still don't think it'll be done in two sentences. I think anybody who owns one of your books, Dean, must own all of them because this is just so captivating, so absolutely uh, fascinating. And I think you do a marvelous job of bringing this really complex science to the world, and I want to thank you for that. How can folks find out more about you? If you have events coming up or a newsletter, a website, um, I'm sure they can uh, Google your books and find them everywhere, but uh, as a resource, how can people find out more about what you're up to? Well, two things. One is my website is deanradin.com, and I work at the Institute of Noetics, Noetic Sciences. So the website is noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. All right, perfect. Dean Radin. Our guest today on the Mystery School, thank you, Dr. Dean. I really, really, again, I'm gobsmacked. This is just so exciting. It's We've just scratched the surface. I hope we can do this again. And again, thank you for your contribution. You're welcome. We'll be back with a few final comments on KPFK. This is the Mystery School. Stay tuned. Thanks for staying with us. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM for all of Southern California. This is KPFK, and uh, boy, I really like that interview. I mean, we just scratched the surface. There's so many questions uh, that I wanted to ask, but I guess what's becoming increasingly clear to me when I look at the interface between mysticism and quantum physics, empirical uh, hardcore real-world physics, right, of the quantum type, the subatomic particle. What stands out about all that research, 100 years of research, is that it appears that particles only have properties when someone puts their attention on them. Only when there is some awareness at some level of the existence of a particle does it then 
gain properties of mass and color and spin and polarity. And as Dr. Radin was explaining, well, it occurred to me, maybe I'm stretching the metaphor a bit, but isn't that like KPFK and our relationship with our listeners? Since we're a listener-sponsored radio station, if you're not aware of us, we don't exist. Our existence, said another way, is a function of your awareness that would be your understanding of what this radio station is all about. In all of its diversity, over 100 radio shows a week, just an amazing array of progressive programming on so many different uh, issues and perspectives representing the most diverse community that we can possibly represent. But we need your support. Again, if you don't put your attention on this, if you don't look for us, we're not going to, we'll, we'll exist in a sense, but we won't have any properties, right? It's like if we're available via your radio or your smartphone, but you don't turn your attention to the radio or the smartphone and say, I want to listen to KPFK, we effectively don't exist. So there's a financial aspect to that. In order to exist, we need your support, okay? And there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can dig deep and come up with a really nice, healthy annual pledge, $100, a $150, $250. Or I like the pay-as-you-go plan where for pennies a day, you can make a significant contribution to KPFK. Just go to kpfk.org slash donate right now. Just get into kpfk.org and mouse over the banner and look for Support KPFK. And then in the drop-down, you'll see Sustainer's Circle. And in just a few clicks of the mouse, you've chosen a monthly amount that's taken out of your account, and which appears, of course, in your online banking. Or you can call 818-985-5735. It's 818-985-KPFK, and uh, one of the nice people in the phone room will take your contribution or your donation with all major credit cards. This, of course, is all tax deductible because we're a charity, but just consider the, the program you just heard with Dr. Dean Radin, the chief scientist of IONS, in order for particles, subatomic particles, the basic fundamental building blocks of all that is, if these seemingly solid particles need to be observed in order to have properties, to really fully come into existence, someone or something has to be paying attention. I think that's a real uh, lid-lifting or mind-expanding kind of a concept. What does it mean? In other words, you co-create your reality and have an influence on others as well by what you put your attention on and what you care about. And I know you care about this radio station and the Pacific Commission because you're listening right now. And so, again, if you want to make this your annual contribution before the end of the calendar year for tax purposes, do it now at kpfk.org slash donate. Or set up the, as I say, the sustainer circle, the pay-as-you-go plan, $15 a month, $25 a month, uh, whatever contribution your conscience is suggesting to you right now that you wouldn't even miss, 
right? $15, $20 a month. Uh, if you're unemployed, if you're a senior on fixed income, if you're a student, you can pledge $5 a month, as little as $5 a month, that's pennies. And yet, that'd be a $60 annual contribution. That's That helps. That really, really helps. Only 10% of KPFK's listeners ever donate anything. I'd love for you to consider the, not just responsibility, but really the opportunity to be part of the inner family, the 10% that supports this radio station. It puts its money where its mouth is, and its time and its energy, and people who tell their friends to listen to KPFK about this show they really like, and this one they've just discovered, and all of that helps. All of that builds support for not just any community radio station, but a very special, progressive, free speech radio station on the issues with entertainment as well as information, has a global perspective and yet meets the needs of the local community, right? Think globally, act locally. KPFK is part of that action. 818-985-5735. Call right now as the top of the hour approaches. And if you prefer to do it directly, manually is so easy. Just go to, with your browser, kpfk.org slash donate and click on support KPFK and then sustainer circle. Check that out. And there's premiums up there too you may want to take advantage of, but we get them maximum amount of your contribution when you just open your heart and your mind understanding how this mission of peace and social justice is for the greater good of all concerned without exception totally inclusive progressive community radio 818-985-5735 or point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate Look for us every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. California time on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California. Streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Found on the website, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. Wishing you happy holidays. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.